What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We had a really tough time before we got launched, but what I will say is that pretty much from the moment that we launched, we knew we had a tiger by the tail. You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Legorio Chapkin. Today's episode High Expectations, Low Ego. My guest today is striving to change access to organic, healthy foods at reasonable prices. While also taking on Amazon with a very un Amazon model in that he thinks he can do it all sustainably. His company is going plastic neutral this year and carbon negative by 2025 and is supporting regenerative agriculture while already offsetting the company's entire shipping footprint. If you know supply chains, you know that this sounds barely possible. Well, his business is working. It has more than 1.2 million paying members and had more than 400 million in sales in 2021. It's called Thrive Market, and he's co-founder and CEO Nick Green. It's not that Nick's journey has been easy. He and his co-founders, when they started out, could not get a dime from venture capitalists. Then he spent half of his and his co-founders' money on a website that turned out to be vaporware. But they stuck to the mission and found investors and a business model that matched. Nick hadn't set out to found a company. He thought he'd become a lawyer. But he always cared about democratizing access to quality food and to education. And that led him straight into running his first company from a dorm room. When I went to college to then go to law school and be a lawyer, which, you know, is pretty much as far away from entrepreneurship as you can possibly imagine. That said, if I look now, you know, in in the rearview mirror, I was doing lawn mowing jobs when I was seven or eight, um, started in our, in our yard and insisting that my parents pay me something, even if it was $2, uh, then extending to my next door neighbors and then on to like the neighborhood to the point that when I was 12 or 13, I was doing literally 20 lawns uh, around our neighborhood. So I had a, a veritable business that way. Um, and then actually in high school was when my real, what I described as that accidental entrepreneurial journey started. Uh, and that was uh, doing SAT and ACT prep. So I had done well on the test myself. I grew up in a very middle-class community where, you know, people didn't want to pay for Princeton Review or Kaplan. And, you know, I started with just tutoring a couple of neighborhood kids. One thing led to another. Word spread. Started making some flyers. And, uh, you know, by the time I graduated from high school, I was running courses in my hometown with 30 kids in a class and running, you know, practice tests with 200 kids in a church basement. Um, so, you know, kind of in spite of myself, I was... In school, this like type A, jump through the hoops, super intense, uh, kind of by the book person. But in spite of myself, I was becoming an entrepreneur. Right. Interesting. And so during your, your the course of your education and you're thinking you're going to go to law school, what what changed? What, what happened there? Well, I think I had a particular definition of success um, that from a very young age that basically 
um, you know, basically focused in on academic success. And, you know, if I'm honest, I think it's just because that's the first place that I experienced success and it felt really good. I had a mother who uh, actually didn't, didn't graduate from college herself, really valued education. She came from a, a working class Mexican-American family um, and no one in her family had gone to college. So for her, uh, her kids focusing on school, doing well in school, working hard and getting to college was like the ultimate thing. Are you the oldest child? I am the oldest, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All the pressure got, got got focused on me, and not in a bad way. She was like the most supportive, encouraging, positive uh, parent in that focus. But I think those first like twelve years of school were basically reinforcing that that like that's what success meant. I was able to level up, and also as a perfectionist, it's a game you can control, right? And I think there were you know games that I couldn't control that I actually wasn't very interested in at that time, and entrepreneurship probably would have been one of those if I hadn't stumbled in and realized that um, it can actually be a lot of fun. So you you ended up uh, starting a company out of your Harvard dorm room, which is a story I've heard before. Yeah, right. Mine wasn't quite as big as Facebook, but, <laughs> it, you know, honestly, it, it, was, it didn't even start in the dorm room. It continued in the dorm room, but it was that test prep business that I had started. And like, honestly, business, but at the time, I never would have called it that. It was like me teaching SAT classes because I didn't, didn't want to get a real job. But um, but I, I ended up getting into Harvard, which, as you can imagine, was a huge deal for my family um, and for for my mom especially. And I think this culminating moment of like, wow, not only is this a milestone, but what opportunities is this going to open up for Nick? What opportunities does this open up for our family? And you know, for her, it was like a generational thing. And I got to college and realized there weren't a lot of kids like me. There were, you know, it was it was a lot of people that had had come from more privileged backgrounds that had been doing SAT and ACT prep with a multi hundred dollar an hour tutors since they were very young, um, and I just realized how I had like gotten in, but there were so many kids like me who w didn't have the opportunity that I had, and so it, the 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 SAT prep that I had been doing in my hometown took on this new mission, if you will, of like, hey, this should be different. Like there were as many, there were lots of kids in my high school even that were really, really smart. Um, some of whom were smarter than kids that I was hanging out with at Harvard uh, and that just didn't, didn't have the doors open. So I said, let's, let's build a platform, let's build a business that can, um, that, that can open up access. So we basically, I created a curriculum. Um, I called it SAT Game Theory. I was like, turn the SAT into a game. I wrote a little book. And, uh, and then I started hiring undergrads from Harvard, uh, from my dorm room, literally interviewing people in my dorm room, to uh, go back to their hometowns and do what I did in mine. Yeah, you built in some level of scalability to it. Yeah, and it, look, it, wasn't, it never became a massive business, uh, but we had 250 branches around the country our second year. Uh, by the time I sold the business, we had more than 500 branches around the country. We were using the summer test prep to seed online test prep during the school year. So it was a wild ride. And again, that like, you know, that thread of accidental entrepreneurship, like never would I have told you when I started it, you know, this is a business I'm going to scale to millions of dollars in sales and sell to another company and, you know, ditch law school to, to run for three years. Uh, but that's what happened. Let's fast forward a little bit, though. We're here to talk about Thrive Market. And and I'd love to hear where the seeds of, of that idea came from. Um, how did you meet your co-founder? The seeds of Thrive Market for me actually did start with my mom too. So like the two things that she was most obsessed with were education and health. Uh, and both of those came from her experience and her family. Again, grew up in a very working class family. Um, 
she had multiple siblings who had type 2 diabetes. Uh, her mother had type 2 diabetes, a lot of you know, obesity, hypertension, just various lifestyle diseases that came down to fundamentally food for, 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 to just really simplify it. Um, and so that was a big part of our lives growing up. That's like the backdrop for when I met Gunnar. Uh, Gunnar was my co-founder at Thrive. We were co-CEOs in the early days. Uh, and when I met him, he actually pitched me on investing in a company. Uh, he was calling it Shop Tribe. Um, totally different business model than Thrive. We were, he wanted to do group buying events for uh, healthy products. Uh, so kind of like think Groupon for healthy food. Um, but the mission was the same. It, it was to make healthy living easy, affordable, accessible to everyone. And as I listened to him talk about it and paint the landscape of access to health food in the U.S., it was sort of crazy because I realized, like, I grew up almost 30 years ago at this point. And uh, more or less, it's the same problems that, pe that my mom was facing when I was a kid. It's still expensive. There still aren't health food stores nearby for a lot of people. Uh, it's overwhelming. It's intimidating. Um, and so I just got super excited. Um, and like over the course of about an hour, the meeting went from him pitching me on investing to me pitching him on doing it together. Um, and, you know, everything ultimately changed about the business. So it was like very, it was interesting. It wasn't that the, the model was baked. But it was that that mission just, you know, it had inspired him, it inspired me, and it's it really continues to be the, the driver of everything we do. We started with that, that problem of um, it is hard, it's expensive, um, and there's all these different barriers, basically, to getting healthy in this country. And some of that is awareness and education. A lot of it is that, you know, ironically, simple organic products that are made naturally cost you know, in many cases, 50 to 100% more than highly denatured, chemically laden, you know, huge ingredient deck type products that have become the norm. And, and if you really look at it, aren't even food, right? It's like food-like substances that have been manufactured to, to be pleasurable to eat. That's the way I think about them. Um, so we just thought that was crazy. And we were very clear on what that problem was and what we believed the barriers were to getting healthy. And, and so we basically started with those and asked ourselves, how do we break those down? Um, so as I said, the, the original model that we have is let's do group buying events. We'll pool people together. We'll buy individual products at wholesale from manufacturers and we'll get wholesale pricing. Problem is nobody wants to wait two weeks to get their individual you know, grocery items. So that model went out the door pretty quickly. Um, and we started basically studying other business models out there to say like, what could we do? That would make that would start by just making it close to affordable. And the goal we said was let's get natural organic products at or below the price of, of conventional equivalents. And it was that problem, that gap that we wanted to, to close, that drove us to the membership model. And so we we started basically studying uh, uh, Costco. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and that's still the linchpin of our entire model, right? Our members pay sixty dollars a year. They get access to natural organic products at highly discounted pr prices. We get front-loaded cash flow, which allows us to fund inventory uh, and member acquisition costs. We're able to maintain our margins while still providing uh, much more value to our members. Our typical member makes back their membership fee in two purchases, uh, just in savings. We consider ourselves the un-everything store, is the way I describe it. Like, we're not anti-Amazon. Uh-huh. But you're not Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're very different. If you search on Amazon for almond butter, you'll find 90,000 results. That's great if you, you know, in in categories where more is better. But when you're looking for the best or the highest quality or the healthiest or the most sustainable, you don't want the most. You want the best. 
And so you know, our approach has been the opposite. We've said, let's hyper curate the catalog for our members that simplifies the process. It means they can outsource their trust to us. It means they can shop more quickly. For us, it means we can concentrate our purchasing power on fewer brands, which means we get better pricing. We can simplify our fulfillment and do all of our own fulfillment in-house so that you know, when you order on Amazon, you get, you know, if you order 10 items, they might come in six or seven or 10 boxes. You order from Thrive, you know, 15 items on average per order, and they're on average in one box. So a lot of um, a lot of the core elements of the business model just naturally followed from these problems we wanted to solve to make healthy living easy. Yeah, that's great. Let's let's talk about the early early days um, a little bit more. Um, when you were first starting out and you wanted to fund the business, you went to your, your, the typical typical Silicon Valley route of of pitching investors, um, and they didn't quite see your vision, did they? Uh, no, to, to put it mildly, straight up, we got rejected by every single institutional investor we talked to. And I think it was almost like the opposite of the reaction I had had. Like for me, the business model didn't make sense, but the mission resonated so deeply because I had experienced those barriers firsthand and seen my mom struggle to break them down for our family. Um, and, and then I also knew the demand side, which is like I grew up middle class in the Midwest and I knew people did want to get healthy. Right. And when we went to Silicon Valley or VCs in LA or New York, these are in coastal places where I think there's a little bit of looking down the nose at the rest of the country and a bit of a, a stereotype that, like, you know, people out there don't want to get healthy uh, or there isn't demand. Um, we, I can't tell you how many times we got the question, how are you going to compete with Whole Foods? And the idea that, you know, 50 to 70% of Americans don't live within driving distance of a Whole Foods didn't even dawn. And I like even when we would say that, I feel like they didn't, didn't they like didn't quite compute. Investors look for things that they can understand and they, they can relate to. And if you don't do your own grocery shopping, have a huge disposable income, and you know see a Whole Foods every other corner uh, in your neighborhood, you know you're not going to have a lot of perspective on how hard it is for you know huge parts of the population to access healthy food in this country. So how did you fund it, and how did you um, kind of jumpstart that growth at the at the beginning? At first, we funded it ourselves, and that could only last so long. So we both started and sold businesses before. Um, we figured, all right, let's like kind of hold the equity dear close uh, initially. Mm-hmm. We kind of took for granted that we would be able to bring in VCs. Right, because this is a business that had to scale to work, right? It had to scale to work, and it is ca- was capital intensive early. So we knew we had to do that. Um, and it was pretty scary, though, because we didn't go out to raise the fu- do the fundraising until we really needed it. What we ended up doing is sort of a like necessity is the mother of invention moment. Um, we went to the health and wellness influencers who we were already talking about partnering with on the marketing side. And we said, hey, do you guys want to be uh, partners in the business? Like, would you want to invest in the business? Um, and there was like no expectations from that conversation, especially given the response that we'd gotten from the VCs. Um, but the answer we got almost universally was yes. And what was interesting is even though many of them had never wrote an angel investment check before, um, you know, these are great business people who uh, have high cash flow businesses in many cases, they're content creators, um, and didn't have access to venture investments. So they actually got super excited about it. And once we got that ball rolling, I mean, it was it was incredible. We raised our first about eight and a half million dollars um, from basically health and wellness influencers and then other angel investors. And it was like small checks, you know, $25,000. Our cap table is, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds of small investors, but it worked. At what point during those early years did you did you know that it was working? I mean, how many years did it take before you felt that real confidence like, 
we can continue to grow this and we don't need to have our personal finances on the line anymore. I mean, despite that you had, you know, this $8 million from a bunch of small investors, I imagine that wasn't like all the security you needed. It wasn't. And we had we had multiple, call it near business death moments before we even got up to launch. So another one I didn't mention was we tried to outsource the technology side of the business and bring in a consulting firm to build the website and, and found out we basically had vaporware half a million dollars later. Oh, gosh. <laughs> three weeks before we intended to launch. This was also when we were self-funding the business. So this was like, I mean, the pit in my stomach knowing we're failing to fundraise. I just spent hundreds of thousands of dollars of my own money on a website that doesn't work. Uh, and, you know, we're kind of at the end of the runway. That was really, really tough. And again, necessity being the mother of invention that led to bringing actually the best thing we ever did, which was bringing our third co-founder, Sasha uh, Siddhartha, who's our, our CTO to this day. So we had a really tough time before we got launched. But what I will say is that pretty much from the moment that we launched, we knew we had a tiger by the tail. Um, and That's fantastic. When was the launch? So this was November of 2014. One of our earliest investors, uh, whose, her name is Katie Wells, uh, she at the time was a 29-year-old mother of, I think, four. She now has six kids. This amazing uh, uh, mom blogger. Uh, it was kind of like one of the original mom bloggers. Uh, we were the first angel check she ever wrote. And I remember uh, over Thanksgiving that year, she did a, a post on her blog and then an email uh, to her audience. Um, and like the orders just came flooding in. Like it was by you know week two, we had orders from every single state in the lower 48. Um, and as we started to look into zip codes, you know, you could look at the at the kind of income levels, and it was really clear that there is demand for healthy living outside of the coast, that it is a psychographic quality. It's not just affluent people or or really educated people. And then as we saw the influencer model work, now we had this army of influencers who were also investors who were literally invested in our success. And we started lighting those up. And it was so fascinating. Six months later, we raised our Series A at 20 times the valuation that we had been trying to raise at less than a year earlier. And many of the same investors who'd rejected us at the seed round were now coming back. I don't blame them. There's no bitterness or resentment, but it was really validating and really, um, you know, it was a redemption moment to be able to say, all right, all right this is working. Uh, and they have the, um, the, the support and the interest of people that initially had written us off. Yeah, absolutely. What a brilliant thing to have that financial buy-in from folks who were so influential with customers and then open up the stream of kind of free advertising for yourselves as well, right? Exactly. You brought in the third co-founder and and you and your initial co-founder operated as co-CEOs for several years. Tell me about that relationship and how you how how does the co-CEO dynamic work? How did it work? What worked, what didn't? Honestly, it was great. I hear some t- in some cases horror stories about co-founder dynamics and problems that come up. We were really fortunate. We had four co-founders. Um, all of us had very different skill sets. Um, you know, I hear a lot of times like it's better to have a relationship with people before you start a business. None of us actually knew each other prior to the business. So, like Gennar pitched me, I pitched him. We went and like pitched Sasha. We you know heard a lot about him, but didn't know him. Um, same situation with Kate. 
And I think that like complementarity was really, really key where we weren't stepping on each other's toes because each of us was doing really different things. And I would say for the co-CEO dynamic, that was very much the case. I think had Gunnar and I had kind of more in common in the way that we operated and what our skill sets were and, and where we wanted to focus our time, um, it would have been a lot more difficult. Gunnar and I also came to the business from super different directions, just to give you a sense of his background. Like he grew up on a communal farm in Ojai, California, where you know they were doing organic buying or wholesale buying of organic food back in the 70s and 80s. So, you know, I was in like middle class, middle American, conservative suburbia. He was on a hippie commune uh, in California. Um, and, you know, basically what we were doing with Thrive in many ways was bringing that communal farm, like that potential to the masses. He's still on the board today. Um, he and I still talk all the time uh, and are, are close friends, but he's not day to day in the business. Um, and even those transitions. So, you know, two of the four of us are still day to day. Those transitions were really smooth as well. Uh, where you know at different stages of the business we needed different things and I think being mission driven and all four of us being very aligned on getting to that mission you know we've always said it's about getting it right not being right and I think the I really do think the mission has made us lower ego which uh, has, has has kept the, the co-founder dynamic uh, in a good place and has been really key to our culture too. What advice would you have for folks about um, working with a co-founder that you don't know yet uh, but are starting to work with starting to you know, starting to have a relationship with and dividing up those responsibilities when things maybe aren't as clear in the early days? Well, I think the first is understanding is like having a clear delineation of who does what based on both skill set, like aptitude, as well as interest. And I do think that if those three vectors are too overlapping between two co-founders, especially in a co-CEO role where you technically have the same title, that can probably create some real challenges. You want to make sure you fit together like a puzzle, and not you know with with heavy overlaps. So I think just functionally, that's really important. Um, beyond that, the biggest thing is you know are you personally compatible? And uh, I'm kind of a chemistry person when it comes to relationships. I, I trust my gut. Uh, am I? And even if it's like a first impression, um, I told you in the meeting with Gennar, And by the way, I'm not an impulsive person generally. I'm like I'm definitely a planner. I optimizer, et cetera. But with people, I just, I think there's so much that we're attuned to that you can't verbalize, that you may not even be aware of consciously. And you can, you can feel it in your body. And when I met Gennar, I was not only inspired about the business, I was excited about him. Like I felt his energy and it was like, wow, this, like, this is someone I want to work with. So it made it really easy. And the same experience with, with Sasha when we met him, like after the first, the first interview, I was like, this is our CTO. And there's a whole story there, too, where he he actually said no to us when we tried to pitch him on coming on board. And we more or less locked him in a room with us. and was like, what's it going to take? And <laughs> and so I think you got to you got to be all in and you have to like you have to feel that it's that it's right. If you're having to, like, make a pros and cons list on whether someone should be your co-founder, I think the answer is probably no. Uh, that or you're just mm. overthinking it. What are the qualities that someone needs to be able to grow with the company? Like, how have you grown with the company as it's scaled? How has your leadership grown? And what have you had to learn to lead a company of, of I don't know how many uh, staffers you have now versus 100, you know, back in the day? Back in the in the early days, it was zero. Um, today, we have over 1,000 employees, um, you know, hundreds across more than a million square feet of, of warehouse uh, space. We do all of our own fulfillment uh, and more than 200 corporate uh, employees. So it's definitely grown a lot. 
I think the, you know, the number one thing that hasn't changed across the strategy of the business and the way we approach culture and people is, is the mission orientation. And the mission of what we do is so core to every decision that we make. And the problem that we're solving is hard enough that if you don't have an alignment to the mission, it's just like it's going to impair your ability to make the right decision. And then it's also going to keep you from being inspired and energized as we like try to break through brick walls. So that is the number one thing I look for. It's the number one thing that's kept me here now for eight plus years, and I hope eight plus years more. Um, my leadership has had to, uh, I would say, evolve, transform um, a lot. And honestly, as a, as a leader, it's been an incredibly humbling experience to see you know, at so many different points, what got me here won't get me there. And that that has happened multiple times. And you know, people talk a lot about a growth mindset that really resonates with me of like you and, and I wouldn't say mine is mine is perfect. I hate to fail. I hate, you know, hitting the wall and realizing that I need a I need a change. It's always painful, but you learn to love it and hate it. And I think that ability to stay on the steep part of the growth curve for me is also part of what keeps me here. Right. It's like the business evolves. It's it's so dynamic. And at each at each stage of scale, each new strategy that we drive to open up the mission further is a new leadership challenge. And over, over time as an entrepreneur, you kind of get addicted to that, that process of growth and, and, and evolution. Yeah, so you, you just, you, you love the growth and the change, the changing nature of things. I do, it's fun. And I, again, it's, it's painful too, right? Because you're confronting, you're pushing up against your own limitations, you're pushing up against the limitations of the organization. As I said before, sometimes individuals were the right fit at one stage, but they aren't at the next. So it's not that it's, you know, it's not that I'm just like sitting there with a smile on my face all day, every day. Um, it's really, really hard, but it's really, really rewarding and fulfilling as well. Uh, and it's, and the, the, the difficulty, the challenge is, uh, it's, it's a, it's problem solving and it's, and it's, uh, and it's challenging oneself. So yeah, I, I do love that. When we come back, I'll talk with Nick about how the company stays competitive while being a mission-driven B Corp. But first, a quick break. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Your mission is about um, distributing health, healthy products, um, organic products to places that otherwise couldn't get them Um how do you manifest that internally like with your employees? What is the company culture like? What kind of benefits do you have? And how would an employee um, describe the culture? Let me first uh, kind of pull the thread of what we do a little more. I realize I've mm -hmm. like gotten into all this abstraction about story and things without saying what we do. So, you know, yeah, we sell basically, like one way to think about it is we will sell the best natural organic products you'd find in a health food store. Um, at better prices through a membership model. Um, and so we started out as like, we think think like a hybrid between Whole Foods and Costco online. Uh, we'll ship anywhere in the lower 48. Um, we carry right now entirely non-perishable and frozen products. So like the things we're not gonna carry are the refrigerated section just and for logistical reasons. Although in the future, we we definitely have plans to, to, to make that part of the offering as well. 
And then we also, are, in addition to being a retailer, we're also our own brand now. So I didn't really tell this part of the story, but two years in, we started launching our own products. So like we have 700 Thrive Market branded products. It's a quarter of our sales. Wow. It's a you know $100 million plus business in its own right. And so that's what we do, practically speaking. But everything, like all of those different dimensions of the business model, as I said, have followed from that mission. Like everything is geared towards how do we make healthy and sustainable living easier, more affordable, more accessible for our members. And I view our culture as just the other side of the same coin to our mission. Um, and so again, like number one screen for bringing in someone to Thrive Market is do they care about this mission? Because if they do, that will turbocharge their level of inspiration and motivation. Um, and it will make the problem-solving lens that we have, that mission-driven orientation, really natural to them. So the implication of that is that we need a business that is inspired by the like softest, most heartfelt, passionate focus on the mission, but also is accompanied by this like real grit and tenacity and intensity and performance culture. So, you know, we're like simultaneously warm and fuzzy and very woo-woo. And then at, also at the same time, like really intense and competitive. You know, we have high expectations. We push really hard. We're low ego. We support, we support each other. And then we're, uh, we're high trust. And that means high transparency, top to bottom. Uh, and it means lots of feedback, bottom to top. So if you're a Thrive Market, we're like, we're a weekly all-hands company. We are a quarterly business review company where literally I get up in front of the whole company, show the full picture every single quarter. We're an AMA company where uh, myself as well as each and for the whole company and then each of the execs in their departments do regular ask me anything and like truly anything can be asked. So that's that's what I would say is our culture. And uh, in terms of benefits, we have benefits that align to our mission. Uh, and so one of those is I have the same benefits options that people in the fulfillment center have. Um, it shouldn't, whether you're the CEO or you're on the floor, that shouldn't determine what you have access to from a benefit standpoint. Our benefits are very focused on, on health. Our perks are very focused on health. And we're also not a place like, you know, we're a low margin retail business. So we're not going to be like, we're not going to differentiate from the competition by throwing like the craziest, uh, you know, um, like in-office perks. We're not the kind of company that will have an arcade, uh, you know, or like laser tag in the lawn. Right. That makes sense. Um, but you are also a B Corp. Um, how, do, how do you um, give back when you're already, like you mentioned, a, you know, a, a low margin business? We basically just built it in from the beginning. I think it's very hard to go back after the fact when your cost structure, to your point, doesn't necessarily support it and say, all right, we're going to try to bolt on all these things. Our approach was health is more than just physical health for individuals. It's health of communities. It's health of the supply chain. It's health of the planet. So we do take that holistic view of health, which really ties in especially sustainability. And then we bake that into the DNA of what we do. So we've done carbon neutral shipping since day one, which has given us the ability to develop relationships and offset models and programs and projects that we support that remain cost effective even as the cost of those credits has gone up. Uh, it also incentivized us to do things that minimize our carbon footprint in the first place. So for example, we're entirely ground shipping. We don't do anything with air freight or rush shipping. Um, we're zero waste in our fulfillment centers. We actually went true zero certified last year in our, our third and last one. But that's something that we started back in 2017. So we've done a lot of things that are, I think, going to become more common for businesses, um, or at least more aspirational for businesses soon. And we did them 
honestly, even before members were pushing for them. I remember back in the early days, like nobody knew what carbon neutral shipping was. Um, now we actually get questions about it the same way we do about free shipping for our members. So, so we found a real benefit, I think, in terms of the credibility we have with our member base and that a lot of the things that they're just starting to think about, we've been doing for a while. And in some cases, we're the ones that are getting them interested in it. So like regenerative ag, for example, is now really starting to be a trend where suppliers are going above organic. That was not the case four years ago when we started bringing in the original set of regenerative brands. And I think for a lot of our members, Thrive Market is where they discovered the regenerative movement, um, which, by the way, is all about like organic is trying to be basically neutral. So you're not doing damage to the soil. Regenerative is you're actually uh, helping sequester carbon. So undoing some of the damage from climate change. What is your offset model for for shipping? Um, I know that so many companies are having trouble navigating that, trying to add it to their shipping. What is a carbon credit anyway? There's carbon credit markets and the uh, the validity and the quality of different carbon credit programs varies dramatically. I, I actually think the most important thing to recognize off the bat is that offsetting is very different than not creating in the first place. And by far the most important thing that any company can do is work to minimize their actual starting, like call it gross carbon footprint so that you offset less. That's That's the biggest thing we focus on. So that is like, how do we make sure that items get into the same into the same box? So like the actual volume metrics of an order are as small as they can be, um, which means that you're going to be able to get more boxes onto a truck, which means that you're going to be more efficient with fuel. How do you get away from things like rush shipping and especially air shipping, which is an order of magnitude higher carbon footprint? Um, so those are, and, and then in our supply chain, you know, doing things that are regenerative and focusing particularly with our own brand on regenerative supply chains. All of those things bring down our carbon footprint. Um, and then we work with a platform called Climate Neutral uh, to do the certification and to do the sourcing of the carbon credits. And I think working with a body that actually does verify and validate the quality of the programs is super important. Uh, there's been some real controversy over uh, programs that are um, they're just that aren't, aren't low quality. Yes, what we're going to do now, I'm talking about stuff that we've done in the in the, in the past. W- one thing we're really focused on right now is plastic. And that's been one we, we have been really focused on in the past, just chipping away at basically all the virgin plastic that is normally in. We just think about an Amazon order and the bubble wrap and the plastic around the box and the plastic in the box, like all that stuff. We're, we've removed about 98% of virgin plastic that's normally in an e-commerce order. But just to give you a sense of how much plastic there is, This past year, we did like a kind of next level upgrade, removing as many of the poly bags, which are basically used to prevent leakage of liquid items. Um, And we were able to remove enough uh, poly bags that over the course of a year, you know, they would, I think they calculated, they would stretch from our fulfillment center in Batesville, Indiana, all the way to our headquarters in Los Angeles, California. So I think one of the lessons we've learned is there's always more we can do. And actually, as of this year, we are going to be plastic neutral as well. Wow. That's fantastic and inspiring. Um, So Nick, I'm going to ask you something sort of direct, but something that I'd like you to sort of take the view from above on, Um, you know, because obviously the economy is shifting right now. And while we can't see the future, we can sort of already see some effects. What effect has inflation had on on your business so far? What indicators kind of have you seen um, that might help you and help other business owners predict the next couple of years and, and how to react? Yeah, I mean, and the honest answer is it's been very significant, like very significant to our cost structure. 
you know, the pandemic was a crazy uh, couple of years ahead of that inflation. We took a step function up in scale. Uh, we have, you know, over a million members today. And that had it required us to open a new fulfillment center, to massively expand our shipping contracts, uh, to go direct with a lot of our brands. Um, that volume has actually helped us to have more, I guess, leverage in conversations about how quickly some of these cost uh, changes happen and how dramatic they are. But yeah, I mean, you look at freight, it's way up. You look at packaging costs, they're way up. I think we, a lot of our brands worked with us really collaboratively to keep the cost of goods down because they know how important affordability is to our members. Um, we've absorbed some of that cost rather than passing it on to our members. And you know, we've also been fortunate that we have more control on our supply chain, particularly on the Thrive Market branded side. So I think between innovating with the, the, the third-party brands and doing things with the supply chains that we directly control, we've been able to you know, find ways to offset um, some of that cost. But it's really tough. Um, I think the good news is it's slowed. Um, you, know, you see that in the, in the CPI and the producer index. We're seeing it just real-time in our business. Um, so my hope is I'm, I'm not, a, not an economist. I'm not going to prognosticate. But I will say my hope is that we're on the other side of it now. Um, I think the big question this year is what happens with a recession. In our world, with a membership model, we think it becomes more valuable uh, because our members will want to need to save more money. Um, and so the, the what we've seen over the course of this past year, even with inflation, even with consumer strength eroding to some degree, like we've seen our revenue per member, not just overall revenue, but revenue per member uh, go up in 2022. And that was coming out of the uh, out of the pandemic, which you would have thought was was more elevated. So we're pretty encouraged that at least for our business, we'll be resilient, if not um, uh, if not countercyclical, with with a recession. Um, that said, as a human, as an American, it's something I worry about, uh, and and just on the you know the impact on our country and on on people. There's concerns about how a recession would affect all of these moves that you yourself and so many other businesses have made towards sustainability, toward uh, making things. Um, more efficient, but but more expensive in terms of, you know, how to eliminating plastic, that's costly in, in terms of doing business and taking those initial moves in terms of shifting your supply chain is costly. It's not necessarily costly in the long term, but do you have any predictions there in terms of the importance of those moves and uh, sustainability to Americans in general? Should we enter a recession? That's a really, really good question. And a few things to unpack there. One is and this is like a very important philosophical thing for us in a way that, that I think uh, one of the ways that we've made our mission sustainable long-term, we always look for opportunities to feed the mission while also improving the business and not making it a zero-sum thing where if we do the right thing for the mission, we're actually like taking on additional costs in the business. And there's a lot of opportunities where, where we've been able to do that. Like one example is we we give away free memberships to low-income families. And those are people that wouldn't have bought a membership otherwise. We've given away literally hundreds of thousands of these, these memberships. And they're actually good for our business too because those people spend on Thrive and drive revenue. Things like zero waste fulfillment. We did CapEx in the fulfillment centers. The things that made us zero waste also actually made us more efficient. They made us more energy efficient. Uh, they made us more efficient with our materials. Uh, we got paid to go like send our paper waste uh, to be recycled and our wood waste uh, coming off of pallets. So uh, there are ways to do it that don't require increasing cost. Um, and I think consumers also, because our consumers care so much about this, like, yes, carbon neutral does cost us something. I think we get back that an order of magnitude more in trust and credibility from our members. 
And I think they appreciate that we cover that. We're not asking them to cover it at checkout, for example. My personal view, having just seen the consumer, the conscious consumer movement up close, is these are core values for people and recession or not, disposable income growth or not, they're things that people are committed to. So I don't think people change their values when their economic position changes. I think what they will look to do is achieve those values in a more efficient, more cost-effective way. So that's my that's my personal view. I think conscious consumption is going to be the mega secular trend of the next decade plus. Uh, and I hope it will be because our planet needs it and our, you know, human like health in this country needs it. I do think that there that investors are going to sour to some extent. And I think you saw last year a lot of like kind of interest uh, in ESG that maybe wasn't as authentic. That was more like, ooh, this is a this is a trend. And as a result, you had a lot of businesses that I think, for for lack of a better word, were greenwashing. Um, and for those businesses, when they were just bolting something on that does cost something and isn't accretive to the business, yeah, they're going to cut it, especially if investors aren't as, aren't, aren't as excited about it. But over the medium to long term, uh, consumers will drive the direction that things go. And if consumers demand it, businesses will do it. And if consumers demand it, investors will reward businesses to do it because they'll see those businesses get stronger. So, you know, my hope for Thrive Market is that we can play into this mega secular trend over the next 10 years and be a, an example of a business that, you know, shows that mission and profitability, for example, are not zero sum. And I think if we do that, you know, we can hopefully inspire other, other businesses to do the same. Great. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for joining me today. Thank you. with Nick, what stuck with me is that he kept bringing up being low ego. It's a really interesting concept because it's not one you associate with a company with such a lofty mission and with more than a million customers. But I do think it's really key to never resting on what you've already accomplished and staying focused on what's yet to be done. It's not about putting stamps on things. It's about making steps in the right direction. Thrive eliminating those plastic sealed bags around everything as part of its plastic neutrality goal all of a sudden becomes a massive amount of waste they've eliminated. And as Nick says, every step reinforces the mission and helps educate and motivate consumers too. It's soft and fuzzy and full of grit and tenacity. And that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow wherever you are listening. It'll help make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. Also, if you can spare a minute, please do leave us a review wherever you listen. You can also let us know what you think about our shows by dropping me a note at whatiknowatinc.com. Our producer, who also thinks of himself as the un-Amazon, is Joshua Christensen. Our associate producer is Blake Odom, and our editor is Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.